man it has been a long time since we did one of these 15 and 60 special edition here going to give some love to the teams that didn't do anything really at the trade deadline and then the idea will be when we come back after the all-star break we'll do all the teams that did do something at the deadline and, and give you an idea of how their new personnel is fitting in this gave you a nice long episode here but this is going to be our last episode until after the all-star break but we will be doing a episode for our patreon subscribers patreon.com slash duncan larue also nba cast on wednesday night for nuggets versus lakers we changed up we're not going to do the game tomorrow because we've done a lot of clippers and sixers games and i'm getting a little sick of the sixers frankly uh as it seems like many of their fans uh, may be so uh, with all that said let us now begin here 15 and 60 we're going to start with kind of a combination here of boston and okc danny's so why don't you start with the fundamentals on the boston Celtics? The Celtics are 37 and 15, 12 and 7 since the last 15 and 60. They are currently second in cleaning the glasses net rating at plus 7.9, third in offense, third in defense, and 538's models project them to finish with 56 wins, which would be third in the Eastern Conference, and they're going to make the playoffs. I mean, third in offense and third in defense. Now, really impressive. Now, worth noting that we have big outliers in terms of the number one offense, Dallas, and the number one defense, Milwaukee. So third in offense and third in defense, they're pretty close to like, you know, seventh on both of those. And that could very easily change. That's why you think, oh man, top five offense, top five defense, you'd be on pace for more than 56 wins. But it's just because top three doesn't necessarily mean as much as it might in some other years when there's more of a gap between the top three and the rest of the league. Um, So that's part of that. Oh, one other note there. Boston also has one of the harder schedules in the league remaining. So I think that's a part of the discussion as well. Yeah, that's a, a, a good point to make there too and before we get into this game uh, against okc which was a, a fascinating one on sunday boston huge difference between their first half and second half performance 3.4 net rating in first halves 11.3 net rating in second halves and that 11.3 net rating in the second half is by far the best in the nba by over two points per 100 the bucks are plus 15 in the first half and plus 8.8 in the second half i don't know how much of that is due to uh, garbage time but that this is per NBA.com. Cleaning the glass doesn't have that available. So the numbers will be a little bit different because this doesn't filter out garbage time. Uh, and I was like, man, oh, Brad Stevens team, you know, they always make these adjustments in the second half. And in 17-18, when I first made that observation, that was true. They were much better in the second half of 17-18. But in 18-19 and 16-17, there wasn't that disparity. They were actually slightly better in first halves during those years. So probably, I mean, I definitely have seen some adjustments that Brad Stevens made. Like, for example, that Miami game a couple of weeks ago where they really adjusted to the zone and picked it apart in the second half after they struggled in the, in the second quarter. Uh, but probably more likely than not that it's just random variation. The things that change, 30% offensive rebounds in the second half versus 26% in the first half, and they shoot 60% true shooting in the second half and 54% in first halves. NBA.com doesn't break it down much beyond that, so I couldn't give you much more in terms of what changes there. Um, But yeah, uh, so that was just something interesting I looked at with them. What do you got on these guys here? Anything you wanted to uh, share before we get into this game a little bit? Oh, I think we could. I think we could get into the. We can get into the meat of it a little bit. I mean, something that was that's been so interesting with the Celtics over the last couple seasons. But I, I thought this game was a good example of it. Was you know Jason Tatum getting to his offense? How can he do it against everybody? And part of why that was interesting was the stretches of the game when Chris Paul was guarding Jason Tatum. 
Yeah, that's right. They went with Ferguson a lot of times guarding Jalen Brown or sometimes Kemba Walker as well. When he was in the game, they're actually, and we'll transition to OKC here as well. I'll give you their fundamentals in a bit, but we're, we're going to start to blend here. Lou Dort is actually starting for OKC, but he got the Keith Bogans in this one, 12 minutes, and OKC loves to go to at the end of halves that three guard alignment with Schroeder, Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and Chris Paul. And that unit has been awesome, but they came in with four minutes left in the game and weren't able to get it much closer. Ended up being a, a one point when we'll talk about the end of the game in a second. The thing that occurred to me here is, you know, everyone was like, hey, if, if Miami had been able to get it done with Gallo, if he'd been willing to extend there for a year, they had done that deal, adding in another first rounder to OKC, that Miami would have been a championship contender. I don't see Gallinari quite that way. I see Gallinari as more of a get you into the playoffs type of player. And this game to me was very indicative of why. So uh, yeah, I, I yeah. got the I got the same general idea. And I, I think there are while he is a talented player, whether he strengthens the whole on a better team, and more more importantly to me, not a, in terms of his own teammates, but in terms of superior opposition. You know, so when other teams have players that he has to defend that are challenging, and if they have better defenders to put on Gallo, and yeah, I, I'm not super. I wouldn't have been as enthralled with that potential fit as as some others were. Yeah, he's also very reliant on the bullshit foul drawing, which, which uh, is as a we've lot seen, less effective. Yeah, it, it, when teams can really lock in in the playoffs, I think they can avoid fouling there. Um, uh, but then defensively, to me, is the bigger issue. Exactly. I thought he really got traffic coned in that Golden State series. And granted, you know, there isn't that team offensively, you know, the, when he was playing for the Clippers last year and uh, he had to guard Kevin Durant and Seth Curry and all those guys. Like, that team doesn't exist this year. But here, give you some stats uh, from this game. It's a little tough to break it down because Synergy, sometimes they'll call it an ISO. Sometimes they'll call it him being the big defender in a pick and roll, even if he switches onto the guy. But in the combination of those two items where it basically logged him as matched up against a, a guard who is finishing the possession against him they scored a nine of 13 possessions four of those were threes one was a three shot foul overall 23 points on 13 possessions they gave up by uh, when the guard who is attacking him in pick and roll was able to finish the play and sure you know sometimes they force a pass you know that doesn't include that but those are still uh, and there's some selection bias on those numbers but those are still really bad numbers Kemba Walker hit two huge threes in a row on him in the last three minutes and I think he's actually been a little better this year as an ISO guy especially against guys who are a little bit bigger but he's just too slow uh you know he doesn't really have any shot blocking ability and teams are just going to go after him and uh, it, it can start to look pretty ugly for them in the playoffs depending on what the matchup is uh, so I'm uh you know if they have to go against a Houston or even Utah who had some pretty good ISO play as we'll get to much later in the show uh against Houston that'll probably be the last thing that we do to talk about that game uh from Sunday the uh Bogdanovich game winner game but before so, I f yeah. before I forget should I do the the stats on OKC yeah please do because we forget those all the time for the second team the Thunder 32 and 21 17 and 7 since the last 15 and 60 their plus 2.7 net rating is 12th in the NBA 16th in offense 10th in defense and 538 projects that they will win 47 games which puts them seventh and whichever model you're using there they have a 99 percent chance of making the playoffs so they're I mean they're looking really good 
I'm a little bit more skeptical of, you know, what they'll do once once they're in. But making it this year is quite the accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, and some of the projection systems have them as high as the sixth seed now. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that'll be important, actually, for them to avoid what's looking like either the Lakers or the Clippers in the first round. I think they actually might have a fighting chance. Now, they still need more on the wing. Um, and I do think that this is a team that, you know, they are Paul and Gallo are two of like the big foul drawing guys for just, you know, like not really beating their man, but just, you know, drawing contact because uh, taking advantage of the rules. So I, I do think they're going to punch below their weight. They've also have been, you know, very, very good in the clutch. And, you know, a lot of that is Chris Paul getting to the elbow. I mean, I think it's, it's clear, like, you just have to say, hey, when Chris Paul runs a pick and roll, we are going to either force him to drive, we'll switch, make him throw a pass to the big, whatever. You just cannot let him shoot that elbow jumper in crunch time, yet he still seems to get to that pretty easily. But maybe in a playoff series, teams could be locked in on that a little bit more. Um, talk a little more Celtics here. Jason Tatum, four of seven from three in this one, led him with 26 points against the Hawks. He had a career high, seven, three pointers, including some absolutely ridiculous ones. And the biggest change in his game over the last month or so has been off the dribble, three point shooting. Generally uh, the step back to his left hit a crazy one going to his right against the Hawks as well. I think he also had a game winner going to his right in the right corner earlier this year. I don't think it was a three, but it was a very difficult two. Um, Romeo Langford is getting minutes now. I was not particularly familiar with his game. He had the best game of his career of 14 points in that Hawks game, which Trey Young didn't play, by the way. And uh, Langford, I was very impressed by his help defense. He really made in that Hawks game four or five plays where he came over from the weak side and actually really affected the ball, got a steal, got a block, got a stop and help defense, forced a pass. You don't see those sorts of plays from rookie wings very often, especially he's not a guy who is known as uh, some great defender. Uh, His three-point shot, he did hit a couple of corner threes in that Hawks game. He's not really there yet, though, overall, uh, but shows a, a nice first step as a driver but then against OKC a better team obviously he really struggled only played six minutes and uh he had a couple of plays where he just got driven by Gallinari picked up fouls and when people talk about the inconsistency of rookies it's a lot harder to be consistent when you're not a guy with a big role like Langford because now you're being judged on really how locked in you are mentally or the matchup or who you have to guard whether you have a decent matchup on the other end and you know it looked really bad for him in this game against OKC I don't think he even played in the second half I think he all six of those minutes came in the first half uh, and he was negative eight and picked up three fouls and those are the only ways he scratched in the box score uh but it, certainly encouraging for him what his long-term role on this team might be if he's not a great shooter uh, you wonder that but I think he can give them some decent minutes against some teams the rest of the year uh yeah, I, I'm gonna keep yeah. a close around him a little bit I need to see more of these these the last couple of games I haven't focused on as much with the Celtics I was going to watch more of the Hawks game and it ended up being close but with Trey out I just had a little bit less there was less probative value even though it ended up being exciting uh 
probative value. Man, that is a solid law school term right there. There we go. And um, I want to talk a little bit about the end of the game. Marcus Smart doing something, I mean, beyond actually getting the steal, which was his fourth in 22 minutes of action, was being aggressive when the other guy is not in the shooting motion and your team is up three. There there are lots of arguments, and I'm generally more in favor of, of fouling up three. You know, I, I think that especially if the other team doesn't have timeouts, which the Thunder did at that point, just to just because it, ma- it can make it really hard. But the other way of doing it is to not wrap somebody up, but just try things. And if they call you for a foul, so be it. But if you get a steal or force a mistake, then all the better. Yeah, I mean, you got to be smart about it, obviously, because if they get into the shooting motion, it could be a three-shot sure. foul when you're, you're reaching in. But smart, uh, certainly someone who's capable of doing that. Yeah, on the last play, Gordon Hayward, they had advanced the ball. Boston is up three, inbounding it. They're in great shape. They inbound it. Schroeder goes for the steal, misses it. Hayward then tries to go in for a dunk to put them up five, and Schroeder recovers an amazing play, blocks him. Not the greatest indication for Hayward's athleticism at that point, although he's actually been playing very well of late. But so they uh, come back down, and then Smart with just that amazing play on Gilgis Alexander at the end. The other thing that stuck out for me was these are the two best practitioners of the roll screen, which is basically where you set the screen up top as the big man, and then you roll essentially directly into your own man and set a moving screen on your own man rolling to the basket so that the guard can then finish it because you've already gotten that guy to the uh, path to the room and his own man is behind him because you set the initial screen and then you just roll right into your own man so there's no help at the room should we just call that like the blocking sled or something yeah (laughs) or mr plow yeah Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the, the roll screen is a little more explanatory. Uh, we'll open it up. Yeah. But it, yeah, but it is, I mean, and the, I mean, Tice is, considering like Tice isn't built the same way as some of the other bigs, it is amazing how good he is at that. But I think that's, the yeah. Celtics coach the yeah. hell out of it. And, and Steven Adams is one of the original oh, practitioners back when he was playing with Russell Westbrook as well. So we saw a lot of that play here. Um, all right, that's uh, good on those teams. Take a quick break here and we'll be back with the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets, nearly a playoff lock at 23 and 28, 7 and 10 since the last 15 and 60. Negative 0.8 net rating is 16th in the NBA, 22nd on offense the, as Kyrie Irving has again missed time with a collateral knee sp- knee ligament sprain uh that sounds like a grade one so it looks like he's gonna be out until the all-star break 12th on defense very very impressive for them to be 12th on defense absolutely they project for the eighth seed at 36 wins although they and orlando will be locked in heated competition for that honor of the seventh seed but given 86 percent chance to the playoffs with 538's raptor and their elo projections give them 88 percent quick aside on what the difference between those are raptor is basing it on their contribution of the players with their new raptor system and kind of adding that up uh elo is based just on what the team performance uh, has been and that's so what the far. prior be, model was yeah yeah that's that's the old model it does seem to me that raptor seems a little stickier uh than elo where you know t- a team like memphis for example elo likes memphis a, a little bit better and raptors like no these are their players we're not going to change the perception of them but uh anyway both of them are in agreement that they got a pretty darn good chance of making the playoffs due to the utter decrepitude of the remainder of the eastern conference you want to talk some about chorian prince and his development here in this first year in brooklyn 
I did. And for me, the lens on Prince has been not how is he doing this year, but how does he fit in a potential Nets team next year that has Kevin Durant starting at one forward slot? So basically, is he good enough to be the other forward if the Nets want to be a conference time finals team, let's say? Because saying win the championship is kind of a different level of conversation. And a couple of things to keep in the back of your mind. This is Prince's age 25 season. He turns 26 in March because he was a four-year player at Baylor. Prince has started every game for the Brooklyn Nets, and he's playing about 30 minutes a game, averaging 12 and a half points, six rebounds. And what's been somewhat surprising for me, I've been really skeptical of Prince's defense his entire career. Remember, he played in a zone at Baylor. One of those guys who he has the physical tools, but and looks like he could be a better defender than he was. And for, he was always disappointing on the Hawks in that respect, but he could make shots. And this year, that has turned a little bit. I mean, he's been a part of their defensive success. Um, PIPM sees him as actually a positive this year. RPM disagrees a little bit with that. But the idea mostly being that on defense, he shifted from a pretty clear, like modest negative to a neutral player. That's a pretty big jump. But I don't think that is, if, if we're thinking about what the what they need from that position, assuming Kevin Durant isn't taking on the big assignments, that makes me a little bit more skeptical. You know, like it's, it's not just being neutral. They're going to need more from him with how this roster construct yeah just ask Kyrie Irving yeah that's very very true uh and then offensively for Prince it's it is kind of a little bit of a mixed bag he is shooting 35 percent from three on 8.4 threes per 36 minutes that is the highest rate and the second lowest three-point percentage of his career um and like a Kenny Atkinson team Prince does not shoot many mid-rangers but the the big concern you know not shooting jump shots from two really is that Prince is only shooting 44% on twos he's 54% around the basket only taking 20% of his shots there and then he's taking 32% of his shots from floater range and that's you know just, it, like so overall you have a player who's shooting 35% for three taking a bunch of threes he has 51% true shooting on 20% usage and I think it's fair to say that, you know, especially when they get some better, you know, when they have more of Kyrie and when they have Kevin Durant next year, the lanes will open up a little bit, but it's not, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of like, you know, real growth in terms of his craft or anything else like that. Yeah, my hope would be that he can excise those shots. I mean, even more just with Kyrie back. And now that you've got Dinwiddie, Lavert, and Kyrie to take those difficult shots, I mean, he there were times this year when Kyrie and Lavert were out where he was maybe their second best ball handler off the dribble, uh, you know. And so yeah, I'm sure he, he's had to create a lot late in the clock. And yeah, if he's still taking that many floaters next year, uh, they really need to disabuse him uh, of those shots because when you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and Dinwiddie and Lavert, uh, assuming all those guys are still on the team next year, uh, I think you would uh, have to say that those are not great shots for them. Uh, but you know, I mean, that's the the fact that he's had to take those is a good reason to look at for why they're twenty second in offense. You got anything else on him? I want to talk a little bit about Levert's big thirty seven point game against the Raptors uh, on Saturday. One more quick thing. Uh- Last year, one uh, I was really concerned about Torian Prince's defensive rebounding. Some of that was just where he was on the floor for the Hawks because of who they were playing. He only had, was rebounding 12.3% of opponent misses. That's all the way up to 186 this year. And again, I think a lot of that is role surrounding talent. But that is a positive sign because 186 is not amazing, but it's totally fine. I would I would be interested in the splits. I didn't look this up of when he's been on the floor in terms of team defensive rebounding, but making that from something that really scared me to something that scared me less is important. Yeah, I think a lot of that is probably just the role change. Remember, Absolutely. he was playing almost no four, really, in his uh, Atlanta time. 
and now he's played a lot of that with the Nets so I think that's a big reason why he's rebounding more he's playing more with two traditional bigs you know Collins and Deadman last year Levert had this monster game 37 points six of seven from three he got them back into it they had trailed by double digits most of the game they actually had a chance to win it he went up uh, against OG Ananobi and because OG Ananobi might be one of the five guys I would least be interested in isolating against in the whole league ended up airballing a a shot that could have won it at the very end but it was interesting he was 12 of 18 from the field six of seven from three so the two pointers were six of 11 had some on the fast break there Uh, his finishing is you know he's a very kind of patient slow finisher likes to work into the lane under control i think that could be a good formula for a lot of guys but if he's really going up against a Serge Ibaka he had a a number of attempts to finish against Serge that were just kind of no hopers uh, that really left his team at a disadvantage uh, after the missed layup where maybe he should have tried to pass it out you know I don't think he's really shown a ton of vision had four assists in this one but a lot of this was just hitting the three-pointers that, you know, it's always encouraging to have a game like this. But overall, you know, he hasn't shot incredibly well from three in his career. And, you know, he's not amazing getting to, because he kind of shoots this shut, set shot, not the highest release. So getting to his jumper in an ISO isn't necessarily his strength. You know, he did kind of bomb a few at the end as they were trying to get back into it. So this is a really nice game for him. 7-7 seven seven from the foul line as well. He got him back into it, but I didn't take away like, oh man, he's back. He is really going to be the player that we all thought he was going to be, you know, just based on this one game. I didn't just watching it. I didn't see like flashes of anything where it was just like so amazing. Now, if he keeps shooting the ball well, uh, of course, uh, that's something he has been playing a little bit better lately. Uh, But this wasn't something where I was just like, oh, man, this is this is evidence that he's massively turned a corner here. And just briefly Uh, that just briefly, that's Sean Marks has has some big decisions ahead of him and figuring out the start. Starting and closing five for next season's Nets. I mean, Kyrie, KD in the center, presumably Jared Allen are, are the favorites there. But then is Torian Prince good enough? Is Karis LeVert good enough? Is Joe Harris? And can they add anything other than those guys? And I mean, if I mean what about Spencer Dinwiddie too? Exactly. You know, so like, how, which of those spots do they think are they're comfortable with? How Because the Nets don't have a ton of wiggle room to up, upgrade. They, they're only going to have the taxpayer at mid-level, that kind of stuff. So these are these are big team building decisions. Now, a lot of the, the early stuff was done really well, but you have to close it out and then those are going to be big a a team that has a lot more to do before they close it out the charlotte hornets they are 16 and 36 a scary for those of us who are hornets over baby 1 and 13 since the last 15 and 60 they are now 26th in net rating negative 8.4 24th in offense 28th in defense 538 projects that they will win 24 games 13th in the east and they are not making the playoffs so what do we need from them here? Eight and twenty-two the rest of the way. I think that's right. Oof. Yeah, that's uh And it and that just got a lot dicier based on what happened in the last couple of days. Now, Cavs under twenty-four and a half. That we can have a little, little more confidence in here. Uh and my OKC over boldness is is I think that's close to cashing. I think it's like two games away. Yeah, yeah. Well I I had that too, although it was not one of my best bets the way it was yeah. for you. Probably should have been. Uh, MKG and Marvin Williams will no longer be on the team. Uh, we'll, we can talk more about what those additions are. MKG, Dallas is the considered the front runner. Marvin Williams will be signing with the Bucks. 
Um, the fact that they couldn't get anything, uh, MKG, yeah, they, no one was going to trade for him. But the fact that they couldn't get anything for Marvin Williams really was a surprise to me. Perhaps the offers were so low that they just wanted to give him a solid and let him go where he wanted to go. You know, maybe he wanted to go to Milwaukee instead of, say, Dallas. But there were teams, I mean, Dallas was the one where I'm like, hey, like, why wouldn't you just take something? Maybe Dallas wasn't interested in him. Who knows? But I, I think that was that was a surprise that there wasn't just, you know, take something if you're going to just buy him out there. Right, and um, I, I mean, and the other part of that is if another team, if no other team was making that kind of an offer, somebody should have. You know, it, it can go, we don't know with, with negotiations this is something Dan Feldman and I talked about on Real GM Radio, the most recent episode post-deadline, about we don't know who to blame in these situations, but there's probably somebody to blame. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, what I wanted to do for the Hornets, just this was more out, born out of my own thought process of, hey, how are their young guys doing? But I wanted to focus. We've talked a lot about Devontae Graham. A wonderful story for them. Charlotte has, only has three players currently on rookie scale contracts because they traded their 2016 first for Marco Bellinelli. Oops. And the Kings took Malachi Richardson, so it's not like they ended up yeah. benefiting Oops too much from that. as well. Oops as well. <laughs> And another quirk is that, so each of these Hornets players was drafted in a different year, but they're all going through their age 21 season because the guy they drafted first, Malik Monk, is, was younger and then they've gotten older as they've gone. Um, I wanted to, I, I thought the place to start was with PJ Washington, their current rookie. Starting regularly for them, 12 points, five and a half rebounds. Um, he's shooting 40% on threes, but he is only taking four per 36. I would actually like to see that ramped up a little bit. I think that, I think that he can do it. And Despite having a 57% true shooting, so that's above the league average, Washington has a below average PER, 12.9, partially due to his lower usage. He's at 17.9%, so that's actually below. If you wanted to say all the positions were even, that would be a 20% usage, so we know it's not always that way. Yeah, Washington, to me, uh, he had those huge games early on where he's making and taking a bunch of threes and i think that may have skewed things a little bit positively for him compared to where he's actually at right now i mean you'll recall those who followed him at the lower levels you know for team usa playing in like the under 18 turn of the americas he was just a straight up center and he deserves a ton of credit for adding the amount of versatility to his game that he has but i do think as a one-on-one defender He's a little bit overmatched right now, guarding any kind of a combo forward from the other team. And, you know, he's not really great in the post against bigger players. So he's kind of a tweener back, you know, like they would talk about in the 90s, where he's kind of stuck between positions and can't necessarily guard the three or the four particularly well. So I think that's one concern that I have for him. Uh, what else did you have uh, well, uh, as far as the, that stuck out to you when you've watched him? You brought up the tweener stuff. The other concern there is, to me, when we're thinking about NBA caliber athletes and players, I don't think TJ is a five, and he doesn't have the, no. the rim-protecting chops or the size. And so the, he's been playing 89% of his minutes per clean the glass at power forward and then 8% at center. And it's not a surprise to me, partially due to Washington not being stout and partially due to their surrounding talent, that the Hornets are getting absolutely shellacked. 125 defensive rating when Washington plays center and you know there could be some noise in that but getting there uh, a concern for me with Washington that might just be the surrounding talent and everything else is that he's taking 26% of his shots from floater range and he's only making 36% of those that's another part of the reason why you know his true shooting is is good but it, it could really get a boost there those shots aren't good for most guys you know unless they have that amazing like Brandon Clark Trey Young floater most time it's going to be there but also something that's positive is I mean PIPM luck adjusted all that he's actually a defensive Defensive positive, uh, plus 0.68 this year. That is very unusual for rookies. It might be the, again, who's on the floor, who's off the floor, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if, if he can 
eventually be a part of a successful defense, I don't think he'll be the anchor of it, then that can be there. It does just also change how Kupchak and everybody else have to choose players around this core. The other thing that pops out to me is that as a driver, he hasn't been very effective. Right. Uh, attacking closeouts, uh, the numbers there are not good when he actually tries to go to the rim and finish. So, you know, I mean, here, we'll just, we'll do just a quick call on these. What do you see him as, the median outcome? Either like a weak starter on a good team or a pretty solid backup. I think he's kind of in that, you know, like fifth through seventh man realm. Yeah, I think that's probably what I would say as well. If, if I were going to project him as like a real plus defender, then that would change a lot. But I, I'm not sure. Again, he's just, he's a natural big. He deserves a ton of credit for the amount of versatility he's added to his game. But, you know, I'm still not quite sure that he's going to get there. What about uh, Miles Bridges? Bridges also in his tw- age 21 season, but it's his second year. Uh, average, again, regular starter for the Hornets, averaging 13 points, 5.6 rebounds in about 30 minutes a game as well. He's shooting 34% on 5.2 threes a game. That's about 40% of all the shots that Bridges is taking. He is below average in true shooting, 53% on 19% usage, which is a pretty big jump. He went from 15 to 19 last year. Some of that is, you know, going from Kemba Walker. Um, But something that is a big concern, Bridges, who was not high in either of these in the first place, drop in true shooting, drop in PER from his rookie season. Yeah, and while he's been very good in the post, he's been taking a lot of threes, not necessarily making them. Uh, his individual defense has been a little bit of a problem. That's something that we talked about on our Hornets preview with Spencer Percy. And yeah, I mean, the, the on-off numbers are really rough. 478th in the NBA in PIPM. And that's not good when there's only 450 players possible in the NBA who are not on two-way contracts. <laughs> to be below 450, that that's yeah, not he's, a good he's, sign. And he's actually down to 480 after their loss on Sunday. <laughs> oh no uh and and bridges yeah he, defensively there, there were there was an idea that he could be dominant to me he has not been on that end the athleticism does not apply as, as regularly and also this to me this freaked me out that bridges is barely over 50% on twos, and his proportion of shots at the rim has dropped from 41% his rookie year to 30%, and it's not because he's getting fouled more. His free throw attempt rate hasn't gone up at all. So really what's happened is he shifted those restricted area shots to floaters, and he's only shooting 30% from floater range. So that is a a really big challenge, and it, it's, a, it's a major concern. And it's not fair necessarily to Bridges to talk about the opportunity cost here, but remember, the, the Hornets had the pick that became Shea. They traded down, they got two seconds, one the Cleveland second this year, and the Clippers second in 2021. One of those is looking good, one of those is looking bad. Um, and, and they were probably going to take Miles, it looks like they were going to take Miles Bridges either way, so they were leveraging the Clippers out of those two assets. But that's how it's why it's important to have your board right because Shea Gilgis Alexander has been a significantly better player than Miles Bridges. And yeah. as it turns out, who would have thought they would need they would need another guard? Well, they also, I mean, Michael Porter is another one that I really sure. thought they should have taken. They really needed some kind of star equity. And Shea, too, I mean, I didn't think he had as much upside as a lot of people did. I'm looking wrong about that. But he certainly had more upside than Miles Bridges. Eh, yeah, I don't know. Br- Bridges, I, I think I liked the pick at the time, but he just ha- hasn't really developed. I mean, and then you get in a Malik Monk. I don't know if we need to spend as much time on him, but, you know, between Washington, Bridges, Monk, Rozier, maybe Devonte graham uh, who's fallen off a lot like is any of those guys really like you know we've got this position solved this guy is our starter level of player you know, i'm not sure that they are right now right so um maybe we can save monk till next time though we're, sure. we're running a little short uh, on time here 
because I'm so eager to get to the Chicago Bulls. 19 and 35, 6 and 12 since the last 15 and 60. Negative 3.2 net rating is 23rd. They rank 27th in offense. That's actually an improvement. Defensive rating, though, is on the wane. 13th now. And remember, how they had a bunch of shooting luck. That was a part of it before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and they give up by far the most shots in the NBA at the rim. And uh, we had talked about how their percentage of turnovers was going to go down. It hasn't gone down that much, actually. I mean, they're still forcing turnovers on 17.7% of opponent possessions. Maybe that's going to go down now with Chris Dunn out for a little bit. Uh, he's also got a, an MCL sprain, it sounds like. Uh, they've been a little vague on what the injury was. Uh, and obviously Carter Jr. has been out. Gafford has been out. They're going with Luke Cornett and Cristiano Felicio at center. Larry Markinen has been out also. Not that that hurts their defense necessarily. You know, getting Thad Young into a larger role actually probably helps their defense a little bit. So despite all that, they project for 31 wins. Raptor playoff odds, 11%. ELO playoff odds, 8%. Technically, they're only three games out of a playoff spot before the Philly game. But even to get to 34 wins, and and 538 as the nets projected at 36 they'd have to go 15 and 13 the rest of the way and uh especially with all the injuries that seems uh, a little unlikely i mean maybe maybe if they get everyone back and they play beat up a bunch of tanking teams I mean, that they're so schedule dependent they are one in 22 over t- against teams that are over 500 i mean that's an incredible stat isn't it danny one in 22 against teams that are over 500 and, and, and bad news for the bulls they have the 10th hardest schedule the rest of the season that is bad yeah i mean if it was bottom if it was bottom five then that would be a lot easier like orlando's is incidentally yeah they did lose in philly yesterday as furkan Korkmaz went absolutely crazy we'll probably have to talk about him a little bit when we do philly uh, in uh, a couple of weeks but kobe white time to catch up uh on him here and the eye test to me continues to look a lot better than the stats i think when he pushes the ball in transition when he gets a chance to do that it looks good he can create separation for his jump shot off the dribble he can change speeds he can get to the basket and then the problem is that once he does all those things the ball like doesn't actually go in the basket Right. And what what's surprising to me in some ways about Kobe White is how firmly to me this first, you know, 54 games of his career has gone relative to the scout that we did. Like you and I disagreed a little bit on him, but one of the things we agreed on was that while he created separation, he was not good at converting that into buckets because he wasn't great at finishing around the basket. He's at 51% in the restricted area this time. And he just doesn't have the the strength or the skill to finish in those sorts of circumstances. But but at the same point, you you he's so young. I mean, this is Kobe White's age 19 season that we've seen a lot of fast guards get better at those elements. And getting to the basket is in some ways for a young guy more important than doing well when you get there. So it's again, it's like, how do you interpret these tools? But one thing that I think has been kind of defied what I expected, he's been more competitive defensively than I expected. You know, it hasn't always turned into yeah. results I, yet. I thought he looked fine defensively at North Carolina too. Yeah, but but he's, but you know, fighting. Yeah. Rookie point guards always suck on defense. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think he's been he's been better there. And White has definitely put in a tough spot. There aren't that many players on this Bulls team that can create offense. And there are times when they put to, put together these lineups that still make no sense to me. Stefan Noah has just had just uh, following him on Twitter has filled me with both joy and just just utter sadness 
because he deserves to be connected to a team that is far better than this, but he's also a great person to handle this and like why the, some of the Jim Boyle and stuff and everything else. So give you a few more stats uh, on White and, and then like we were doing with some of the Charlotte guys, maybe we can kind of give a prediction for his career based on, on this first half season or so. 31% of his shots are jump shots off the dribble. That's a big part of why his efficiency, 48% true shooting, is not amazing. 34% from three though, and considering how difficult a lot of those attempts are, quick release shots off the dribble that's not bad for a, a rookie point guard i mean i do you know guys like john morant and luca and trey young i mean i think they still have obscured what a rookie point guard is typically going to be uh that shooting in uh, in the half court around the basket 45 percent is rough just watching some of his finishes over the past three weeks or so it does look better he's slowing down a little more it's not a million miles an hour when he can actually beat the guy to the basket he can do those one hand finishes he does try to go into the body of the defender but because his arms aren't that long sometimes he's just going to get completely blocked uh and he's it's not as bad as it was early in the year but he's still trying to figure out just okay you know when do i have the opening and when do i not when do i need to pass it certainly his passing has not been a, a particular emphasis but you have to remember who he's on the floor with too he's on the floor with a bunch of these other point guards he plays a ton of his minutes with Chris Dunn uh, until this injury, Thaddeus Young. I mean, it, he's not playing, you know, Daniel Gafford and Young was probably the, the most common bigs that he's played with. He's not got all these awesome shooters that he could be like diming up out on the perimeter. So part of that is the system. He's also, you know, it's not as much high pick and roll. A lot of it is uh, attacking from the wing. The pick and roll numbers are atrocious. Uh, just a lot of jump shots off the dribble that haven't gone in trying to finish at the rim. We noticed those difficulties here. Uh, but, you know, again, there is still some some pop that, that I've been happy with. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, those short arms doesn't really have huge hands to kind of go into a hook shot as well. Uh, so, you know, it's tough to figure out where a young point guard is. You know, is it going to be Trey Young, who had a really awful start to his career and then really started coming on around this time last year? De'Aaron Fox was terrible his rookie year. D'Angelo Russell was not very good his rookie year. Uh, you know, or is it going to be like a Dennis Smith's or Emmanuel Moutier where they just are terrible their rookie year and then they don't really improve that much you know it's tough to tell at this point but i still have some faith in him i think he could be a good player i wouldn't put him as a foundational piece at this point you know if they get the number one pick and they're gonna they can draft lamella ball if that's who they think is the best or they think some other point guard that they could draft would be better than him and, and he'd be better coming off the bench i would understand that view i'm not saying like all right pencil him in for the next 10 years he hasn't shown enough for me to want to say that uh but he does have some wild blow buys he can shoot he can handle it and you know i think the comparison that i would have maybe is like a young jeff teague with better shooting that's not bad you know, yeah where he has he's small he's got that kind of explosiveness you know he's gonna i mean one of the big things that was huge for teague was kind of using his quickness to draw fouls out in the perimeter you know the bullshit field contact throw it up thing which sadly is probably like the most commonly called foul in the nba at this point in time so that's about where i stand on 
Kobe White here. Uh, it, would would you, your opinion differ at all, or are we in relative agreement there, you think? Relative agreement, I would say expected value somewhere between the 25th and 40th best point guard in the league. And he could be better, obviously. we, we You never take that off for a guy who's yeah. still in his teens. But... I, I you know yeah the, so, so I'm a little higher. I mean I yeah. guess expected value, but you know you know I'm all about the upside. I do think he does have the upside to be a, a quality starting sure. point guard. Yeah, like uh, but I I would say that the line is drawn like I wouldn't expect him to make an All NBA team. So like that's uh, that would probably but that's more like the 90th percent outcome for for almost any guy except for like oh yeah no I I mean I would be shocked if he reaches that kind of a level. Right. Um. Yeah. I think that's I think that's good. What are the fundamentals on the Indiana Pacers? Pacers are 31 and 22, 9 and 8 since the last time we hit them in a 15 and 60. Plus 2.6 net rating is 13th, 14th in offense, 11th in defense. 530 projects that they will win 46 games, which is 6th in the in the East, and they're making the playoffs. It, it feels like the place we have to talk here is Victor Oladipo. He's returned since the last 15 and 60, and it, it is a process for him to make his way back. Wait, wait, wait hold on. We shouldn't start with DeMontis Simonis getting picked last in the All-Star draft? No, we shouldn't. So <laughs> just, it's not. Just, just kidding. That's, that's, uh, that's not indicative of that much, uh, except that there are a lot of centers and you don't need that many of them that's that's really what that's probably more indicative of than anything but uh in any event yes but back to uh victor oladipo and, and this team that has lost uh five straight now and probably should have lost to the bulls in in the sixth straight yeah and so oladipo he returned to the starting lineup for the the two losses against the raptors he then did not play because it was on a back-to-back in the game uh, their loss to the uh new orleans pelicans he for in the two starting games he was two for six from three in each and he's looking a little bit more comfortable from long distance. He's still been active in passing lanes. So, you know, like defensively, I think his movement has been pretty good. But he's, you know, as I said, still making his way back as an overall offensive player, taking too many shots, making some mistakes. Yeah, we can start with the good. The defense looks very solid. He has mm-hmm. always been at least when healthy in his Indiana career, one of the best closeout guys in the league. I mean, he just covers a ton of ground. He can put the brakes on. And that's actually what we didn't see from him when he was kind of dealing with the knee injury before it reached a catastrophic level last year in that game against Toronto. So I'm actually very pleased with what he's doing defensively so far but you're right offensively I mean the numbers are just absolutely atrocious you're shooting 25 percent from the field uh and my biggest concern right now you know I think he's worked on his jump shot a lot I don't I'm not going to necessarily make any conclusions about his shooting I mean you'd like it if he was making a few more but what's been missing is that absolute turbocharged finishing at the rim I think when he's on the ground it's not quite the same level you don't quite see just those crazy wow splits of the pick and roll i think he had one of those against the bulls but i think i've watched like three of these games so uh and i've watched all of his possessions since coming back but really the finishing at the rim in the half court five of ten at the rim in six games i mean that's just less than two shots a game at the rim is just not the numbers that you're looking at not well really and what you're and what, line. what you're getting yeah. at to me is it's not as much the success rate when he gets there it's that he's not getting there enough so 21 yeah. pick and rolls only gone to the basket five times not getting not getting to the free throw line enough and that's an indicative that's indicative of him maybe not getting enough separation yeah not getting i, all I mean enough. if you look at the numbers in the half court 10 shots around the basket seven floaters taking more floaters than he did back when he was healthy in 17 18 and 42 jump shots in the half court i mean that is just not those are not good numbers so that leads to the challenging question 
of okay, we we hope and expect that Oladipo will be better as he as he progresses. And remember, that's true of injuries like when a guy comes back from a torn ACL, numerous other things. It takes them it take there's a margin a gap between when they return and when they are 100. percent What should the Pacers do with him in this interim period? Well, I think you know the minutes limit. It's probably going to be 28, 30 minutes a game. What I would like to see is don't play him at all with T.J. McConnell. I think that's if you because your goal is really to try and get him going. And I, I don't think there's a material difference for them between the fifth seed and the sixth seed. And you might even argue you'd probably rather be the sixth seed because then if you you avoid Milwaukee until a potential conference finals matchup, I mean, really, this needs to just be about getting him going because you're not going to win a first round series unless he's back close to that 17, 18 level. And perhaps that's just unrealistic this year. It might even be, sadly, as it is to say, sad as it is to say, unrealistic for the rest of his career with this catastrophic injury. And he was a player who's very reliant on athleticism and, you know, even from 25 to 27 your athleticism is naturally going to decline as well even if you don't have the that torn quad tendon but i want to see they had this second unit that killed toronto in the game in toronto and then they tossed that game away with some awful turnovers late against that toronto press but I'd like to see him basically almost playing point guard in the second unit. Get him out there with McDermott at the four. They've played some units that way. And Sabonis at the five. And just let him go to work and spread, pick, and roll. And really have the floor as space as you can get it. McDermott has been awesome from three. Sabonis is one of the best role guys in the league. You can maybe get some backdoor cuts as well. And just put him in the biggest possible position to succeed. I think starting him was good. You know, they started bringing him into the starting lineup before they had planned on, I think because it was going so poorly, frankly. And I think he that was after the 4-17 game against Dallas when I think he just just like, well, if I'm going off the bench, I'm just, I need to get my rhythm. I'm just going to shoot every time. And they did, wanted to get him out of that mentality mentality but i think by bringing him back in with that second unit stagger him a little more from brogdon brogdon's game two has really been i think negatively impacted and because you got to get him going or i mean hopefully it doesn't get to the point where you're like all right we just got to reduce his role a little bit offensively here and that would probably help them in the short term because hey i mean the guy's shooting 25 percent. i don't know if you noticed like there's there's no way i don't care how good your defense is when you're taking 15 shots a game you're shooting 25 percent. you can't be helping your team but they got to get this guy optimized both for this year and for the future and remember also here's one more thing too danny like he could sign an extension they had talked about that a little bit before the season reports indicated but that's something that they might consider he wouldn't be able to get all the way up to the max but he could uh, get a very solid starting salary for a guy coming off an injury and so do you want to get to you know he'll or he'll be a free agent in the summer of 2021. Well, and risk mitigation is an important factor here for both sides. From sure. Oladipo's perspective, it's maybe he never gets back to that player. And from the Pacers' side, if he's the risk of an, a player hitting unrestricted free agency. And remember, something I've talked about many times, a player's third contract, when they really hit unrestricted free agency for the first time is when we find out what they value most and maybe that leads Oladipo to coming back to the Pacers it's where he's had the most career success but there are going to be a ton of teams with cap space in 21 we've already seen franchises prioritize it and while Oladipo is not the number one target on the board I could see a lot of teams being interested in him if the 2020 slash 21 season goes well so both sides have complicated thought processes here and a very intense negotiation should it come to that the Milwaukee Bucks 45 and 7 13 and 2 
Oof. since we last checked in on them 12.2 net rating is first up there among the greatest teams of all time second on offense behind the dallas mavericks 114.4 dallas is a couple points ahead of them but on defense unbelievable 102.2 first in the nba that is three points per 100 possessions better than the second best defense per cleaning the glass they have a 4.3 points per 100 better net rating than the next best team and they have the best defense that anyone has had in raw terms since the 15-16 season and think of how the league has changed since then in terms of the number of threes the pace everyone playing smaller all that stuff this is one of the greatest defenses of all time right now and we're going to talk in in a second here about their game against new orleans which we did for the nba cast which was awesome uh their transition game you want to talk about a little bit though before we move on to discussing that new orleans game yeah the other thing we should mention briefly is that they are getting marvin williams it came up a little bit in the hornet section oh yeah i'm I'm incredibly excited about that because it's a fallback in in terms of ersan ulisova i think that's the you know you and i are both lower on him than both mike boone Budenholzer and Bike Budenholzer, both of which are relevant for the Milwaukee Bucks. But having another option, remember they did have that with Nikola Mirotic last year, even though Mirotic ended up getting marginalized. I think that's a very good thing for the Bucks and their their opponents where Marvin Williams could be better suited, especially to playing next to Giannis as the four and the five. I think there's some lineups they could put together there that are really challenging for opponents in the Eastern Conference playoffs. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited about that. Any, well, let's talk about Marvin, then we'll, I'll go through that other stat that I have. Yeah, Williams, uh, I mean, his increased mobility over Ilyasova, I think he's a better shooter. I think he won't take as many bad shots. He adds a little bit more of an element rolling to the rim as well. He can slip screens. Uh, And I haven't locked in on him too much as a switch defender. I want to see how that looks. You remember that in that series against Toronto, they actually went to where they were switching everything by game five. And so if there are games where they feel like Brooke Lopez, who's been awesome this year, just doesn't provide a must, enough mobility, or when Lopez is off the floor, and if they wanted to go Marvin replacing Robin Lopez, I mean, this to me is, a lot of it is about just what they do when Lopez is off the floor, when they got killed in that Toronto series. So we were a little critical of the Bucks trade deadline machinations because they didn't get anyone. But when you think of that, Bogdanovich, who's the guy we really wanted for them, probably wasn't available and Marcus Morris would have cost that Indiana pick. I, if I knew that they were going to get Marvin Williams for the low price of nothing, I would rather do that than trade a first rounder to get Marcus Morris, I think. So uh, this makes their deadline moves look a lot better. Maybe they knew that he was coming already. And I think he is definitely someone who can be an upgrade over what might've been the weakest spot in their rotation. I guess the weakest spot would be, you know, a true three and D wing defender. But now that you've got him, he can shoot it as well. I think, you know, there's always a concern with the age with him being 33, but I thought he was still a really effective player, good communicator. He's going to fit right in there extremely well, I believe. I think so too. And just to give more optionality in looks, and I would love to see another ball handler. There are a few other qualms that I have, but the Bucks are, they're an unbelievable regular season team. And I think they're going to do really well in the playoffs. We just need to kind of see it. Something else that this team is doing that I absolutely love. I think the two places where teams leave the most on the table, in terms of offensive production is running after makes and running after offensive rebounds or sorry defensive rebounds live ball ones and the Bucks are running the most off of their own live ball defensive rebounds in the entire league per cleaning the glass 36.5 percent of the time when they get a live ball rebound it becomes a transition opportunity 
the next high, the next highest in the league is three percent lower. That's a huge difference when you're only building it out of 36 as opposed to building it out of 100. And even though the Bucks are they're 20th on points per possession on those on those specific opportunities, they're still in the top 10 in points added because they're running so much more than everybody else. And then in Predictable's version of this is the length of time to a shot after live defensive rebound. They are fourth fastest in the league. Yeah, and you do note that they're running. You know, it's not like the Lakers running as all we'll uh we'll talk about them and their transition game later but this is either okay it's Giannis pushing it up for a dunk or they're going to get a three and yeah you know what that's why they're not as efficient because they're probably taking more outside shots and a lot of these shooters are not you know are solid shooters but they're not like unbelievable shooters and there could be some variance there it, it, it doesn't break it down into what percentage of shots in transition are threes so I'm eyeballing it a little bit here but to me it's still awesome to run as much as you can and get those open three-pointers um we also saw the Bucks play against Philly Joel Embiid did not dominate Giannis in the way that he did in that Christmas game Giannis was able when he did attack him had some pretty decent success attacking Joel and you know had just an absolute monster game as they took care of Philly pretty handily at home Philly didn't have Josh Richardson I thought that hurt them quite a bit in that game Philly has uh, their own problems of course but uh can I can I do one more stat just as a way of illustrating this point yeah Milwaukee has the number one half court offense in the entire NBA basically a a 101 offensive rating in straight half court possession yeah and that's not including offensive rebounds not including offensive rebounds as I said they are 20th in transition points per possession off of a live defensive rebound their offensive rating in that 114.5 so think about how you're changing those opportunities opportunities even if you're the best half court offense in the entire league and you're bottom 10 in the other thing still gaining about 0.15 points per possession one other thing here before we transition into new orleans four of the bucks seven losses john schumann had this stat were three point season highs for their opponents including the denver game and they are vulnerable to that we've established that they give up a ton of threes they're on pace for the second year in a row to give up the most three-pointers in nba history but of course as we know they completely absolutely wall off the rim and that's what they did in that game against new orleans that we did the nba cast for last week and i realize it might seem a little weird to do a game that happened a week ago and talk about it you know we we're too busy with the trade deadline stuff to get to it before but i mean i thought this was just a fascinating titanic clash zion versus Giannis, and i just really wanted to talk about it zion williamson has physical advantages on everybody but he had a lot of trouble navigating especially in the early going the the th- the trees that are the bucks defense i mean not only is it Giannis, but also brooke lopez and he had to adjust and i mean were times where i thought the bucks weren't handling the way that zion goes to his left you know how, how much more comfortable he is going that direction but overall, it was an adjustment period. And I love those sorts of situations because Zion hasn't had to deal with that before. He hasn't had to, he's de- dealt with a packed paint because that Duke team had horrendous spacing. But a packed paint with some of the best defensive players in the NBA is an entirely different proposition. So let me give you some context here. Zion was 5 out of 19. Did get to the following quite a bit in that game, although some of that was late. I mean, he had a bunch of plays where he tried to go up against Giannis, against Brook Lopez 
Lopez just couldn't do it. Uh, but Zion was 5 of 19 in that game. He's 53 out of 80 against everybody else. He's shooting basically 65% against everybody else, and he was 5 out of 19 against the Bucks. That's what this Bucks rim protection with Brooke Lopez and Robin Lopez and Giannis Antetokounmpo and even Ilya Sova stepping in to take some charges. And not only that, but then they also even bring like a third guy down a lot of times to triple team guys at the rim. Like this, we just, we have not seen this type of a defense before and there may be a key to unlocking it if you have good enough three-point shooting and you get them out of it and maybe they become ordinary at that point but against 95 percent of the teams in the league it's just you better shoot a bunch of threes and hope they go in because you're just not getting to the rim even zion williamson one of the best finishers as a prospect that we've ever seen just couldn't get it going against those guys um now wait before we do this yeah. can i do the new orleans fundamentals yeah 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 let, yeah let's do, i was gonna save it to the end but go ahead 22 of 30 22 wins 31 losses 15 and 8 since the last 15 and 60 they are 15th in net rating 15th in offense 21st in defense 538 projects that they will win 40 games which is ninth and they are a team with a big raptor elo difference raptor 39 percent chance of making the playoffs elo 17 percent. so zion in this bucks game this did give an indication of what he really needs to work on number one is the right hand finishing around the room he just he had a number of plays where he's on the right side going up against Giannis, forced to bring the ball back into Giannis's body or Brooke Lopez's body. And you just, you're not going to be able to score then. He's got to be able to use his shoulder, use his right hand on those plays against the best defenders. And even Rudy Gobert, you know, he had some nice plays against him in the preseason. I do think Zion still has to get a little bit more explosive to get back to where he was in the preseason. Hopefully that will happen. And I think he's looked better. Oh, by the way, remember when he hit the four of four three-pointers in his first game? He is now four of nine on the season and also shooting 59% from the foul line with some very bad misses. So I still have some massive concerns about him at the free throw line. Um, the other thing that's uh, really interesting is Zion and Favors out there together, especially against this Bucks team that walls off the rim. That made it pretty difficult as well. The, Zion looked a lot better when he was playing with Melly, who has actually been on a tear, shooting over 50% from three, I think, since January 1st. Um, Brandon Ingram still really struggles to get over screens defensively if you're not switching. I mean, that is something that where he can really be attacked. So if you have anyone like a Chris Middleton where it, you've got to put a little more size on him, but then that player can also come off of screens, especially off the ball, Brandon Ingram is really going to struggle. He just doesn't have the body type to get through screens. He's just, there's too much of a screen. Even, you know, Giannis is kind of the same way. Kevin Durant is kind of the same way uh, where they just, there's so much of them to screen and they're not that, scr- that strong. So uh, that's something that stuck out to me in particular in that Milwaukee game. Anything else you want to talk about with these guys? Just briefly, I was fully expecting, I mean, I wrote a whole damn piece about it. The Pelicans, they created the Darius Miller walking trade exception, though part of that was Miller wasn't hurt when they signed him and he got hurt shortly thereafter. And the idea there is that they could have traded Darius Miller for somebody making similar money who was signed for next season. And the advantage there is that New New Orleans is going to be, it looks as if they retain favors, which is not a a guarantee, but if they do, they could function as an over the cap but below the tax team. And so if they acquired somebody, you know, even if it's a non-inspiring guy for five to fourteen million dollars, they at least could have added a little bit more depth, and they didn't do that. Somewhat, the, they would have been an awesome Marvin Williams destination right. too, actually, to, to yep. play the Melly role yeah. instead, get a lot better defensively. I, I mean, it's not like they don't 
have enough assets here i mean now would i have said that they should have thrown in one of their first rounders for mark no. williams of course not but they could have used miller uh now i think they have a few concerns about next year as far as like the tax yeah, um, and they, they have some variability in terms of guys like Favors, but we'll see. Yeah, and uh, because Marvin Williams is going, or I'm sorry, Brandon Ingram is going to need a, a big raise. But, you know, Marvin Williams is someone they maybe could have tried to re-sign. I don't know if he would have wanted to stay in New Orleans. I mean, you mentioned getting someone under contract for 21. There just, there aren't that many players, it, it seems like, who were freely available who are also under contract for next year. Um, and, so, some of the, and some of the yeah. ones who were weren't slam dunks. You know, there, there weren't a ton of teams desperately trying to shed salary. You know, like the, I had been wondering about, whether the like kind of Rudy Gay type of guys were going to be available where the team is maybe okay with with keeping them or not and would they just move it to get out of the money and we didn't see any of those types of things happen other than Deadman, but that was somewhat different all right let's talk Phoenix Suns here 21 and 32 disappointing 10 and 14 since the last 15 and 60 18th in the NBA in net rating 17th on offense 110.2 offensive rating how amazing is it that 110.2 is now 17th on offense I mean five years ago that would have like led the NPA to give you an idea of, of how impressive that Bucks defensive uh accomplishment is uh, to be as low as they are have the best defensive rating since 1516 defense they are 19th 111.6 projecting for 34 wins which would be a tie for 11th in the conference and at least according to 538 their playoff hopes are over one percent chance of the playoffs on Raptors version and less than one percent on the ELO version I think that the rest of their schedule is pretty difficult as well so it's probably time to move into a little bit more of a building mode and uh, DeAndre Ayton now has I think 23 games under his belt so I thought it was a good time to catch up on him you have any general thoughts on what you've seen from him so far this year Danny we were so encouraged in that first game with how the defense looked with him on the floor and due to the suspension we didn't know we did we were just gonna take longer to figure out whether that was an aberration or that was real and so for me the general split is I think defensively Eaton has looked better it was always a question mark going back to when I saw him play in high school about whether he would apply himself the physical tools are undeniable with Aiden. I think that's been better than I expected but offensively his game has stagnated way more than I expected yeah he has let's talk about the defense first though because that is encouraging I mean the fact as bad as he was last year overall just being slightly positive and overall PIPM is a step forward absolutely for him for sure and they're good when he's on the court 4.3 net rating when he's on the court and they're negative 2.3 when he's off the court the defense is actually better when he's on the floor 3.3 points per 100 better about the same improvement on offense uh, if you look at shot distribution uh teams actually take 1.1 percent fewer of their shots at the rim when he is on the floor but let's not go crazy yet on the improvement because there he's benefiting from some opponent shooting luck when he's out there opponent shooting 3.4 percent worse from three and 4.4 percent worse from mid-range with him on the court i'm gonna we first learned this lesson with nikola vucevic a couple of years ago when he had these awesome defensive rpm numbers and teams were shooting like 30 percent with him on the floor and 40 percent with him off the floor and it's like yeah you know your center probably isn't forcing a team to shoot like that much worse from three um one-on-one in the post i think he's pretty effective a lot of guys will try him and be surprised at how quickly he moves his feet he's pretty strong you're not necessarily moving him out of the way and he's got pretty decent timing when he's blocking shots on his own man so he's always been a pretty decent one-on-one defender but then when you get to the offense he's shooting more he's had some big games at times but 
I don't know if I would call it a regression, but it hasn't necessarily been an improvement offensively. Yeah, that's why I use the word stagnant. To me, to me, that's been more the case. His true shooting has dropped 61% last year in 71 games, 56% this year. And one of the one of the big concerns with Aiden is that he's getting a lot of post-up touches. Seventh in the seventh in the league there, but he's not particularly effective on it. And that, you know, maybe you can break him of it. Maybe he can get more confident in his jump shot. But the foundational stuff there, especially because he's he's physically talented, but he isn't the type of post-up dominant. This isn't Shaq, who's like, oh my God, when he backs you down, you have to send a second guy. It's a different type of threat with Aiden. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and to talk about the post-ups, seventh in the NBA in post-ups per game, as you mentioned, 0.87 points per possession. He's shooting 46% on post-ups. Your big problem is he gets fouled on 5.3% of his post-ups. Nikola Vucevic, who we've criticized for years and years and years for just throwing up these soft, quick flip hooks in the post. And he does that partially because he doesn't have a lot of explosion down there. He's been the butt of jokes for years about it, how he doesn't get to the foul line. Nikola Vucevic gets to the foul line almost double the amount that DeAndre Eaton does on his post-ups. Among the top 30 in the NBA, the only person who gets fouled on a smaller percentage of his post-ups is Al Horford. And for a guy, the whole idea of him is he's just going to overwhelm people physically. That just has not been the case. That like You would see that number one and how often he's getting fouled, and that just is not happening. Uh, talk a little bit more about what his post-game looks like. In particular, when he posts up and just kind of a straight static post up on the block he's really not getting fouled he's posted up on the left block 43 times and he's drawn one foul the right block massive improvement posted up 24 times and he's drawn one foul much higher percentage of the time uh and that one foul that he drew in the right block was someone fouled him when he was shooting a jumper a, a turnaround jump shot part of the reason why he's not drawing as many fouls is he likes to just go to that face up early jumper really without testing the defense he he'll almost like hot potato it for mid-range and just overall not just on post-ups he's taking 30 percent of his shots outside of 10 feet and that's another reason why the overall efficiency is down then you look at also his shooting from floater range, which was actually pretty solid a year ago. Yeah, he was at 56% last year, down to 47 this year. Which is still a pretty good number, but it's yeah, not, not a, as amazing. Um, the free throw rate is down from last year, as we mentioned. Um, now, when he gets that deep post position in the lane, that's when he's getting fouled. He'll usually just go to a, a right-handed hook shot in that situation, but he can draw some fouls that way because he's right at the charge circle. He's in a dangerous situation. I think a lot of it is just that he's not working his way in to a dangerous position. I do like that he's got some versatility to go either right or left shoulder but on the left block he's turning over his right shoulder which is basically for like a fadeaway mid-range jumper that's usually what he's doing when he's going right shoulder and so usually your counter is work into the lane from the left block you got the hook over your left shoulder and then you your counter is the drop step rather than the turnaround jumper and the drop step really gets you into great position for a dunk or to get fouled uh as a passer he's found a few backdoor passes to guys cutting down the lane from the block i think overall he's a little too quick to pass it out before the defense is really committed maybe even a little bit too unselfish at times where you know he'll sort of just see a guy moving around and throw it to him but that guy's man is kind of still on him he hasn't really forced the defense to commit before making the pass um 
So baby steps forward. I think he can get to being a solid, effective starting center. His finishing around the rim is still excellent when he really gets there out of the pick and roll. It's where some of his big games, offensive rebounding has been solid. But, you know, for a number one overall pick, is this all gets back to, again, as we talked about so many times, that high replacement value at center. He hasn't shown to me an indication that he's going to be that true offensive hub. And, you know, with the improvement he's made, maybe this will change, but you still don't see him as quite the game-changing defender and you know even if he wasn't Luka Doncic who got picked after him you know it's not amazing return for your number one pick in this day and age despite the fact that he is taking steps forward another thing I wanted to bring up briefly is paralleling an argument you and I both made about Trey Young making the all-star team I'm presuming a reason Booker didn't make it is the lack of team success the Suns are outscoring opponents when Booker's on the floor not by much but by point by point two points per 100 possessions with a 113.6 offensive rating that's 76 percentile totally good it's just that the team falls off a damn cliff when he's not on the court. Their negative 5.4 net rating and the offensive rating drops all the way down to 101.4 when Booker's not on the floor. And it is completely unfair to blame Booker for the team being bad when he's not playing. All right, so our next team that didn't do anything at the trade deadline, you could say this uh, for basically every year, the last in-season trade they made was to do Nando DiColo a favor. San Antonio. Also looking pretty ugly, mired in that eight games under 500 range, 22 and 30. They had been surging, but the schedule toughened up a little bit. Some of their shooting luck regressed. My prediction was that they were going to be the ones who would make it. That's not looking very good right now with the surge from Portland and Memphis. So they're 11 13 since we last checked in on them. Negative 1.1 net rating, 11th on offense, 24th oof, on defense, and they project for 34 wins tied for the Suns for 11th in the conference, and 1% chance of the playoffs per 538's Raptor, and ELO a little bit higher, 7% chance of making the playoffs. They're, in ELO, they were actually much higher. They were kind of in the 30s a couple of weeks ago, but they've had some difficult losses since then. Yeah, I think the place that we want to talk about with them is DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan's January, 15 games, 66% true shooting on 28 usage. He averaged 27 points, 6.6 rebounds, 5.7 assists in 36 minutes a game. And he's having one of his best offensive seasons as a pro. The usage obviously is not where it was for his prime years in Toronto, but he has the career high in true shooting, 60%, and the second highest PER at 22 of his entire career. And for those who remember, usage is a very important part of PER. And considering that he's had a drop there since Toronto, and still is up near those heights is genuinely impressive yeah and much has been made of the fact that they are spreading the floor a little bit more lamarcus aldridge and and, you know the aldridge derozan tandem has gotten a lot of crap for just those guys aren't that good when they're on the floor i mean if like aldridge 58 percent true shooting again he creates a lot of shots derozan turning over a little bit more than he used to but uh those are he and aldridge are still very low turnover players to me though like this offense could be one of the best in the nba if the supporting players were just hitting more shots i think that's been their bigger problem offensively than derozan and aldridge yeah you know who they're really missing davis bertans yeah you're right. I mean, the, when he was out there last year the, in that bench unit would just kill people. 
Yeah, and they and Bertans is I mean he's gotten even more latitude to shoot in Washington than he had in, in San Antonio. But having that knockdown shooter who doesn't hesitate would be huge for some of these lineups that, that Popovich is playing. But a couple more things on DeRozan that I think are worth talking yeah. about. This is the highest proportion of shots he's taking in the restricted area since his early twenties. He's taking twenty six percent of his shots from there, and he's making seventy four percent in the restricted area. That's up from sixty six percent career average. He's also making half of of his floaters and that's another quarter of his shots so I think regression to the mean will tone some of this down a little bit and remember Drozen's still not taking threes he's attempted 29 this entire season and it, it, and what something else that's that's notable with DeRozan is the Spurs have a 112 offensive rating when he plays that's above average nothing wrong with that but remember who he plays with and against and it drops a little bit when he sits but the defense gets significantly better I don't think that's DeRozan's fault that's just how the team is constructed they have better players defensively. well well I, I think it is his fault it's partially his fault because he is a three now and when you're playing someone with his skill set at the three you really and he doesn't shoot so now you can't play two bigs with him when you're oh uh, so so, so your argument is that he forces the choice sort of like the westbrook capella thing yeah yeah i mean defensively he's forcing you to be really small and to not have any kind of a defensive cover not that they have that player on the roster necessarily but if he's your three i mean rudy gay is your four he's improved defensively but he's not you know you're like number one stopper aldridge is taking a step back defensively i mean i think the only way they could ever hope to defend with this roster would be with playing purtle and aldridge together and they did that some last year but now that you and you know part of it's not DeRozan too I mean some of it is you know DeJounte Murray doesn't shoot I mean he's taken some strides forward so it's white but those guys aren't high volume three-point guys either so you know it's not just DeRozan it's also white and Murray but like DeRozan is the three he has to play the three he can't chase a guard around a screen we saw that in the Denver series and they have a bunch of obviously small guards too but if you're playing him at the three it then just forces everyone else into difficult positions that they're not as good at either and so you know whether you want to say it's his own individual defense which isn't great but then it's just it's not even what he's doing and what he's being asked to do it's that you can't ask him to do that much and then everyone else it messes up everyone else's defensive role too there's also a, an interesting split between PIPM and RPM with DeMar DeRozan. PIPM sees him as a huge negative on defense, negative 2.66. And so even though DeRozan is a positive on offense, he's still 386th out of 500 in PIPM. Whereas RPM, he's positive. Not not a huge positive, 27th among small forwards at plus 0.44. But I find that an interesting mesh point. I don't know the models well enough to 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 explain all of that away. I just I just wanted to note it. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing with DeRozan is if you he's so hard to fit around on both ends but if you do provide that fit which the Spurs are kind of starting to do offensively now with Aldridge shooting the threes he can still be really really effective and it's just a question of what is that going to do to the rest of your team and then you know if you ever got into the playoffs could he be a big score for you because he really seems to kind of drop off in the playoffs as well can't necessarily beat the best defenders but there are teams where he can really really help your offense if you just you kind of have all the other elements but you just don't have that one creator and that's maybe something we'll talk about in the offseason if they do try to move in we'll see whether he opts into that player option it's seeming more and more likely that he's going to do that at this point in time but he's just he's a player with some big strengths and some big weaknesses we'll put it that way uh should we talk i guess we kind of switched over to the west let's go let's go to his old team let's go to the toronto raptors okay the raptors are 39 and 14 15 and 1 since the last 15 and 60 including that 13 game winning streak they are fourth in net rating plus 6.4 13th in offense 
strong second in defense. 538 projects that they will win 57 games, which is second in the West. And they're obviously making the playoffs. We don't really have any doubt on that. Now, let's start by talking about Pascal Siakam. After that incredible start, he's now actually a little bit below average in terms of true shooting percentage, 55%. The big problem is the twos that he's taking in the paint non-restricted are not dropping the way they were before. We marveled about some of his touch on, on those floaters on the move in the paint along the lane lines off the glass. He was well over 40% for his career before this, and he's at the 35% this year. And then also the long twos not working as well either, 32% from that range he's one of the few guys on this team other than Ibaka who even takes long twos at all they have a very analytically friendly shot chart but definitely a downgrade from Kawhi Leonard to Pascal Siakam shooting it from that range I mean the fact that he's even developed the ability to take those is a massive improvement but he's not at the point yet where that's a, a positive shot for him he still kind of shoots that hybrid set shot where he sticks his leg out way far to the right um from three-point range, though, he's right around 35%. He's taking a few of those off the dribble. And yeah, he's taking a lot more jumpers. That's why his efficiency is... I mean, you remember at one point early in the year last year, like two months in, he was at like 70% true shooting. So his role has certainly changed. 53% of his shots in the paint this year, 70% came in the paint last year. And But for him to still be shooting 35% from three is pretty good when you consider that last year, 68% of his threes came from the corner. And this year, only 24% of his threes come from the corner. So he is either above the break, taking a lot more off the drill. For him to maintain that three-point efficiency, given the change in role, is pretty good. And this is one of those things where he just has to take some of these shots for this team. You know, I don't think that he's like an inefficient player or that he's playing selfishly. It's just sometimes those shots are going to materialize late in the clock. And he's really the only one who is capable of creating anything off the drill just because Lowry and Van Fleet are a little bit too short to do that, to create jump shots and create the separation late in the clock. Unless I missed it, there's another another element of the Siakam three-point shooting that I think merits discussion. So you brought up the difference between corner versus above the break, which is important. The other one is self-created versus assisted. Yeah. So last year, and for basically his entire career before this year, Siakam's been almost 100% assisted. Was it 98% last year, 100-100 the years before that? That's all the way down to 66% this year. So that means he's taking about a third of his three-pointers self-created. A lot of those are above the break. That's just generally the way it works out. So to be at about the same percentage, when he has increased the volume, he's basically doubled it for in terms of per 36, per 100 possessions in terms of volume, and increased the difficulty by a significant degree, both in terms of location and previous action that's really impressive and it's that's the sort of adjustment we I actually brought this up I talked about it a lot with Devonte Graham when he was that breakout player I think that was around Christmas time we talked about him and, and so for Siakam yeah that means you know that's going to probably be a drop in true shooting and a couple other things because when you you know he's shooting worse from three now dropped from 37 percent to 35 but considering the shift in his offensive role and everything else it's it's real it's genuinely impressive to me but I think the thing we should spend a little bit of time talking about is their defense and there are a, a bunch of different ways to talk about it, but for me then you know we're not doing awards right now but part of why Nick Nurse is going to be very high on my coach of the year ballot at the end of the season, if not win the whole damn thing, is that they try so many concepts and they're able, they tailor their approach more to their opponent than anybody does in the regular season, partially due to player capacity and coach capacity, but it's it's incredible. Yeah, and the big thing that's been awesome for their number two defense is... 
forcing turnovers but they're not doing it with an unsustainable pressure scheme in the half court the way chicago is right chicago forces a ton of turnovers but part of the reasons they never beat good teams is because if you're a good team you have the personnel to attack that two on the ball pick and roll scheme toronto they're doing it a lot of these like crazy comebacks with the press that dallas game the indiana game that we referenced earlier in their section so 16.9 percent of possessions are forcing turnovers and the bulls are such a massive outlier in this uh toronto would be right up there among the best teams the last five years with that number if it continues they do allow a ton of offensive rebounds and that's something that has been a problem for them in the abaca center lineups uh, for some time but they are second in e field goal percentage against and they are doing that despite being 25th in uh cleaning the glasses location e field goal percentage where you just say now this isn't based on how well it's contested and all that it's just based on where are you shooting what is the league average from those spots and so you have to conclude obviously that they are forcing misses from spots where teams don't normally force misses and that's correct second in the nba giving up only 59 percent shooting at the rim and then perhaps less sustainably 34 percent from three is what they're giving up which is in the top i think three in the nba as far as opponent three-point field goal and 30 37 percent on long twos which is the third lowest percentage in the league so teams just aren't making jump shots against the raptors i think it's you know i think there's more luck in it because we generally that's the way we see it but it wouldn't surprise me sort of like some of those celtic teams that that the the raptors are doing what they can to help lower those numbers so it's part 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 you can expect a lower opponent shooting success rate but also partially some good luck yeah and so if you look at the two pillars i guess you could say three pillars of their defense one is the forcing the turnovers and that fuels their ridiculous transition game too this is an interesting step in cleaning the glasses transition frequency five of the top seven are your five best teams in the nba so that shows you how important it is to be able to get out in transition part of that of course is the feedback loops that you're so fond of where they actually get stops and especially when you're forcing turnovers you can run a lot more so it's forcing the turnovers and then only eighth in giving up shots at the rim so that bad location e field goal percentage that's all just how much they're shooting how many threes they're giving up and then they're also actually forcing misses at the rim as well in addition to not allowing that many shots there so and you look at Serge Ibaka he is in the top 15 among those who have faced more than 100 defensive field goal attempts at the rim allowing 51 percent shooting there same with Chris Boucher is at 51 percent as well and then you've got even guys like Ananobi Siakam even someone like Kyle Lowry is pretty good for a guard in that respect he just gets over there and he apparates uh I like to say he's, he like from Harry Potter he just shows up in the lane to take a charge or force a pass like he had a play on Victor Oladipo at the end of that Indiana game where Oladipo drove looked like he had the layup and then he had to just slam on the brakes and shoot a floater because Kyle Lowry just showed up there right in front of the lane you didn't even see how he got there um so yeah this is a really good defensive team I think we could have anticipated that they would have been a top five defensive team I still worry about their offense especially as we get into the playoffs very reliant on transition the defense very reliant on forcing turnovers you know I think those are things that are when teams are really locked in against them but they've also got nick nurse who who has proven to be an excellent adjuster as a playoff coach Uh, anything else on these guys or should we uh finish it out here with the utah jazz 
before doing the maps and like <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean it's a reminder of how long these 15 and 60s are yeah let's do the jazz uh they're 34 and 18 16 and 7 since the last 15 and 60 seventh in net rating ninth in offense eighth in defense 538 projects them to win 52 games which would give them the five seed in the west and as as kevin pelton noted that would put them potentially in a four five series against the rockets which in some ways you would say oh man they played two years in a row but considering the game that they played recently maybe we should be more excited about it than the prior years yeah i would be extremely excited about that yeah the jazz righted the ship but they did it with two absolute skin of their teeth victories first was the rudy gobert clear goaltending against dame lord that enabled them to escape against portland and then absolutely completely ridiculous shot from boyan bogdanovich fading away between two guys might have even gotten fouled and right after pj tucker had hit a go-ahead three this game against houston we'll talk more about them in a little bit i mean the, the it has been absolutely as fascinating as we thought it would be this will be a game of the month nominee or game of the two months when we do awards again at the end of february but what was so fascinating about it was the jazz guarding russell westbrook like he was Giannis and akupo putting their center on him and despite that westbrook took two three-pointers and three 31 two-pointers yeah and he was 12 of 17 at the rim i mean it was like he was playing like Giannis Antetokounmpo and his he in that lakers game he had hit some jumpers had a really nice game there he had 39 in this one 18 to 33 from the field but didn't have a ton of assists i mean the the strategy was hey we're gonna let him go right at rudy gobert he scored over him a few times as well and pushed the ball in transition didn't get to the foul line a ton i mean i think it was they're willing to live with that if he wasn't setting up a, a ton of other players. Uh, Houston didn't shoot it quite as well from three. But uh, since we're trying to be focusing on Utah here, I thought what was most encouraging to me for Utah was for the first time, really, they looked comfortable isoing against the Rockets. Jordan Clarkson, this was the game that he was born to play, baby. 30 points, 12 out of 19, 3 of 7 from 3. And it was just, hey, Jordan, you want to go one-on-one every time against the matchup that we can find for you? Absolutely. Like, he was loving it. He, I mean, he hit some pretty difficult mid-rangers at times, but he was also getting pretty good shots. And then Mike Conley, they had lost three straight. He came back into the starting lineup. They lost another two. But I thought that Conley, to me, looked physically like he was supposed to look and he had 20 points plus nine eight of 16 from the field in 34 minutes uh, had six assists uh he was able to get to the basket quite a bit as well hit a three off the dribble was changing speeds i mean to the extent that you want to say and i think he's going to start playing better now but if he doesn't i don't think you can point to a physical decline right now for him because coming off that long layoff with the hamstring injury and they were very cautious bringing him back for good uh, reason i think yeah yeah i think he looks really good he looked explosive he was creating space now he's a little small on the other end as is donovan mitchell like that is six foot and six one in your backcourt basically um but mitchell has improved his iso game as well they were able to go at james harden time and again especially when he got five fouls in the fourth quarter uh i thought the offense looked good against this houston team for one of the few times that it has 
over the last few years. And also, having Connolly and Clarkson means that they have to lean less on Donovan Mitchell, Joe Ingles, who who shouldered a lot of the burden when they played the Rockets the last two years. I think that having more diverse options ha- can definitely help. And I wonder in future iterations of these two teams and potentially a first-round playoff series where Bojan Bogdanovich fits in. I think there could be some some moments for him, but he, he only took yeah. seven shots. Well, only t- but, but just space the floor for the other guys to go one-on-one. That's true. Yeah, and maybe, maybe depending on how there's how the Houston Rockets are lining up, there will be times that that's all he needs to do. Yeah, because Boyan, his one-on-one game is really more about getting in the post. Yeah. And these these Rockets all have like pretty thick defenders. So that doesn't work as well. Like he's more about kind of overpowering when he goes into the mismatch. So that's fine. He's like an unbelievable spot up three-point shooter. He's shooting over 40% for like the 90th consecutive year now. So go ahead, have him space the floor. I mean, because that, that's what they were missing, right? Like they got all these open threes against Houston last year and they just couldn't make them. Um, I, I do think still, you know, we saw the guys off the bench niang juan morgan and tony bradley they actually went to juan morgan instead of bradley to get a little more mobility and morgan was actually plus 11 he wasn't doing a ton there um but bradley i don't know if he can really play in this series who he i mean maybe he could guard like tabo cephalosha or something if he's in there who, who you're not gonna uh worry about taking a three um Niang, he had uh, this, he looked better. He'd, he'd been struggling for the last few games during this losing streak, but he was two of four from three. And then he also had a, a beautiful up and under in the lane that I, I'll call the sliding door for oh, the minivan. Boy. But yeah, I like it. He might have, he may have, uh, the Rockets announcers thought he slid his pivot foot, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to call it the sliding door. The Rockets announcers think that uh, they've toned it down. Actually, I'll give them some credit, but they, they do kind of, they're kind of more like subtweeting the refs at this point than like actually tweeting them. <laughs> they're not adding them anymore. Yeah, uh, precisely. Um, so yeah, this would be fascinating. Gobert guarding Russ uh, would be fascinating. Russ to me looks incredible physically right now. Um, even if he's kind of he's almost become a character driven himself from a skill perspective because he just can't hit a jumper really anymore. Um, but the bounce that he's showing, I mean, it looks really really good for him. He's finishing much better, and, and I do think that if you're talking about unlocking him, that Capella trade uh, has helped. Even though they are now one and two, one of those he didn't play in in uh, in Phoenix uh, as they got blown out and james harden uh was two of 13 from three he'd had some massive struggles for a time picked it up in a couple of games but then uh, couldn't hit threes in this one um and robert covington to me looks pretty good as well he was four of ten from three in this game and uh has made made some big help plays one other thing i want to mention for the jazz is that they are taking the most the highest proportion of their possessions in the half court. That is not really what you want to see, but at least they've been an effective half court offense. Their their 98 offensive rating in those situations is fifth in the league. So I, I don't like that. I would like to, to see to see them approach it a little bit more aggressively, especially now that they have more ball handlers. But this is the way, especially if you have a really good defense, that it can work if it has to. Yeah, I think the Jazz are still the number one offense in the NBA since mid-December. Let's get to the number one offense in the NBA for the entire league though and that is the Dallas Mavericks standing. Mavs are 32 and 21, 13 and 11 since the last 15 and 60. They are plus 5.4 in terms of net rating, fueled by the number one offense in the NBA, 116.8 offensive rating, 18th in defense. It's only going up. It's that's so incredible. crazy. Like, Luca's Luca's been out. Uh, we thought just hey, anything that's that much higher than the league is going to be unsustainable. No, it just keeps getting better. It's ridiculous. 
538 projects that they will win 49 games and finish sixth in the West. They're, as we talked about in OKC section, they are coming on a little bit, especially if Luka keeps missing time. They are, The Mavericks are going to make the playoffs. They are reportedly going to add Michael K. Gilchrist once he clears waivers. That helps explain why they didn't use Courtney Lee's contract in a trade. But if they were willing to cut Ryan Brokoff, they could have theoretically done both. They could have added, added two different yeah. players and... I think that would have helped, but again, we'll, but, we'll, we'll, well let me let me weigh in on the, on the fit of MKG. Uh, this is something that we first saw with them way back when Al Farouk Aminu on their fourteen fifteen team, when he, basically a guy, a wing who couldn't shoot, you have him be the role man on offense, and then he can guard some of the best guys on defense. It, MKG it profiles as. I would say probably their best perimeter defender at this point. I, I mean, he's so. kind of, he, he, he's been on ice for a while, but he's got a little more heft than Dorian Finney-Smith. I mean, sometimes guys just lose it and they're done. You know, I mean, he and he didn't play in Charlotte because they just needed someone to space the floor. He just couldn't fit in offensively. He doesn't have a jumper. But, you know, back when they had Dirk Nowitzki, they could do this with Aminu. Now that they have Kristaps Porzingis, they can do it with MKG, play him at the four. He's the role man on offense. He's basically going to take Dwight Powell's spot and then he can defend the best wing on defense and Porzingis will protect the rim as the center so he's a, a solid fit you know I, I would have preferred Marvin Williams here a different player obviously there are also reports they tried to get Rondé Hollis Jefferson to play nearly this exact same role that we're talking about with MKG and I think Hollis Jefferson has got a little more athleticism but maybe MKG will be revitalized. And I mean, he well, was so, a very good defensive player once upon a time. There is also the downside for Dallas in terms of not making this as a trade that it would have been nice if it works out to have MKG's full bird rights on his full salary. And now they would have to use, unless he's going to basically take the minimum, they would have to use, give him only a 20% raise off the minimum. That's not very much. And so yeah. again, there there are there are costs here. And considering- Yeah, you don't want to have to break into your mid-level exception. Exactly. you would imagine- all they'll be doing is giving out a one-year deal True. with that mid-level but that, that's exactly so. why having his bird rights would have been a good thing because then they could have given yeah. him they could have given him a one-year balloon and then and then basically said it's a non-guarantee or something else after that yeah no i agree with you but uh you wanted to talk about here there's been a, a matter of some controversy that Kristaps porzingis has played so much better when luca has been out um so you wanted to, to talk a little bit more about what that's looked like and why that is yeah i mean it when you look at porzingis's numbers himself it's it's true i mean so when porzingis is shared the floor with luca 49 percent true shooting 24 percent usage when he's played without him 57.5 percent true shooting 29 percent usage so he gets takes more possessions has been more effective and the offense hasn't dropped off that significantly you know 115 to 112 considering they lost an mvp candidate that's not that big a deal and the defense has been better i don't necessarily put that on luca's shoulders it's just who they have on the roster each point and if you want that in terms of per 36 numbers he goes uh, Porzingis goes from 18 points and eight rebounds to 26 points and 10.5 rebounds and so that's that's pretty amazing and um then one other thing I want to mention just kind of as we get in before we get into the nuts and bolts of this is the Mavericks have a four plus 4.5 net rating with both Luca and Porzingis plus 8.3 with Luca and no Porzingis plus 6.5 with Porzingis and no Luca and then this is part of why their net rating is so good plus 1.1 when neither of them is on the floor yeah that that's pretty impressive so I wanted to see all right, is there really anything to this? Like, how is he is, is he getting his shots from a different place? Well, number one, 
the biggest differentiator is he's shooting 40% from three when Luca's off the floor and 31% with Luca's on the floor. Uh, he takes more threes, 8.8 per 36 minutes with Luca off the floor versus 7.2. But I don't have the capability to dig into on and off of whether he's more open, but I can't think of any reason why his three-pointers would be more open with Luca off the floor as opposed to on. Now you might say, oh, it's just rhythm. He's getting more shots. He feels more empowered. That's why he's making them. I think if you ask players about it, that's probably what what they would say. You know, he just feels more comfortable because he gets more touches. He's a larger part of the offense, higher usage overall. But no, I, I mean, I think it's more likely just random variation that he's shooting 40% from three with Luca off the floor and 31% when he's on. He's also shooting, if you want a, uh, another explanation for the efficiency improvement, he's shooting 85% from the foul line with with Luca off the floor and 69% from the follow and Luca is on the floor. How could you, Luca? How are you, why are you making him such a worse free throw shooter? <laughs> um, he does get to the foul line a lot more without Luca. Um, I think he's looking to drive a little bit more. You know, the post-ups are still terrible either way. He's uh, lowest points per possession, 0.71 of any player in the top 30 in the NBA in post-ups per game. So the post-ups uh, remain bad. Uh, and he's shooting around the rim a little bit more with Luca off the floor. So I think he is trying to drive a little bit more. I still don't think that his drive game is particularly effective. It's slow. He goes left every time, you know, from, if you want to say, oh, it's like his mid-range shooting. Well, he doesn't shoot any better from mid-range. He's pretty terrible either way in the thirties does seem to shoot a little bit more higher percentage of his shots. No, it's actually right about the same. Come to think of it. Sorry, the print on that chart was pretty small. Uh, in terms of the percentage of his shots that come from mid-range. So it really is just about shooting the three ball better, frankly, and shooting free throws better. That's why, uh, and just taking more shots overall, but pretty similar shot distribution when Luca is off the floor. So if you, I don't think it's anything ultimately is my conclusion. I don't think there is really any reason that you can point to. The the only thing for me is maybe that the aggressiveness activates him a little bit. But if yeah. we're, we're going to predict how this, how this moves, I think that the exactly. efficiency will go up with Luca on the floor and it will go down. So then that will, that will balance it. All right. Last time here, the LA Lakers, Los Angeles Lakers. All right. Well, since, since you're, uh, <laughs> since you're more correct, why don't you just read their stats? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm incapable of, uh, of See, so the funniest, the, the funniest thing is point. in the 15 and 60 document, because of this, I went on this odyssey last year and found out that it's the specifically the LA Clippers and the Los Angeles Lakers. I put it that way. And now for whatever reason, yeah. that's in my head until I die. Uh, odyssey huh how, how could you resist the siren song of these incredibly fascinating hey, semantics hey, I, I was a no I, w- I was a los angelino for four years so i guess that's a cut, you gotta you gotta put what was it like uh, ulysses he put like cotton in his ears or like wax in his ears or something so uh, or he told his, his, his sailors, sailors did, to do that yeah sailors, and then they lashed him to the pole so yeah. so that like he could hear the siren song but like wouldn't be able to react to it man it's been a long time since we read classics but yeah the odyssey was was something um that might have been the iliad i can't remember which of the two anyway um probably the odyssey 39 and 12 for the lakers 15 and 6 since the last 15 and 60 they are the number three team in net rating plus 6.8 fourth in offense fifth in defense 538 projects them to win 60 games which is a pretty clear first in the western conference uh depending on which model we're using that uh, for elo that's a five game clearance over the rest of the west um in terms of raptor it's three over the clips um and obviously they're gonna make playoffs we don't need to talk about that and what we want to focus on here is lebron james specifically something that you and i both had an interest in and kind of did a little bit of research independent of each other is how he keys the transition game for the lakers 
Yeah, and it's not necessarily he's getting the ball and running it down teams' throats the way he did. He's still very effective in that. He's got that left-to-right spin move in transition. Most guys are more comfortable spinning right-to-left, actually. Uh, but you know that certainly is still a, a devastating move. He's still a devastating finisher. But I tweeted this, and I have absolutely no way to prove this, but I think he might be having the best long-passing season that I've ever seen, whether it's something that we've highlighted previously where he'll basically throw an entry pass to AD from like right at half court. AD is just an awesome receiver. KCP can get out and transition to uh, Kyle Kuzma. I mean, he just throws these awesome long passes. And you know, Kevin Love is another great outlet passer, but LeBron has the ball in his hand so much more to throw him so much more. And these are just a, overall a great transition team. Uh, the numbers for the Lakers in transition are absolutely outstanding. As a team, fifth in transition transition frequency and second in efficiency with that 131 offensive rating in transition. And when you so the the team wide numbers are really strong, but then what makes it so striking is the on off splits for LeBron. So when LeBron is on the floor, the Lakers have the their 93rd percentile in transition frequency 17.7 percent that drops to 14.4 when he sits and the the biggest shift is in running off of live ball defensive rebounds they go from doing it about a quarter of the time to doing it a third of the time when lebron is on the floor yeah they are more dependent on lebron i mean if you want to just make the pure mvp value argument here they are more dependent on lebron than any other team is on their best player they are 14.6 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor they are actually negative 3.6 net rating when he's on the bench and that's because of how they built this team and i think it was wise to spend their resources the way they did i think and granted they didn't have many ball handlers who were available at the time that they were able to do their free agent business because of the Kawhi leonard sweepstakes ending as late as they did speaking of that quick note that darren collison is not returning to the nba this year yeah, and I thought, I think we talked about that on a previous show that I think his, maybe his impact would have been better just because it got Rondo off the floor. Um, they are 7.3 points for 100 possessions worse with Rondo on the floor. Now, he is replacing James in a lot of these, but nonetheless, uh, that is the worst on the team among the guys who actually play significant minutes. Uh, but they built this team because they just needed more defense and shooting on the wings to, to maximize it when LeBron was actually on the floor. And that has certainly worked, but they don't have that backup ball handler. They weren't able to acquire one. They didn't have the mid-level pieces to go do that and get, say, a Derrick Rose. You know, Kuzma was probably too much to give up for him. And there weren't that many kind of primary ball handler types available anyway. Uh, so they're just going to have to deal with this. And hopefully LeBron can manage to play 43 minutes a game in the playoffs and they'll survive the rest of the time but they are totally dependent on him those fast break numbers you talked about he's just initiating everything that's why he has so many assists etc etc um what else we got on these guys here because we can talk about ad's post-ups yeah he is third in the nba 5.3 possessions per game in the post and 0.97 points per possession that's not bad I mean that is pretty solid when you consider that all those are half court offenses they don't include any offensive rebounds obviously or or half court plays I should say that that's good offense throwing him into the post in the aggregate has been pretty good offense and the only two guys who have more are Embiid whose numbers out of the post this year are just astonishingly good as much as uh, we want to kind of crap on the season he's having that aspects uh, of his game has been awesome and then LaMarcus Aldridge is number two and uh, AD is number three in terms of number of possessions per game uh, in the post 
Uh, and yeah, the only other thing I want to mention briefly is we we got to see the Lakers in person recently. Uh, they they played the Warriors, ended up winning by five, and it was a weird twist of twist of fate that this was in many ways a reverse of games we've seen from the Warriors the last couple of years, where the Lakers just weren't playing the normal level of attention and effort defensively. And so, I mean, Marquise Chris had 26 points on 12 of 15. It felt like all of them were lobs from Kai Bowman. Yeah, 20 in the first half. Yeah, and at the same point, even though it did get close late, I think the Warriors cut it all the way down to five. It, you know, the Lakers were unequivocally the better team, and it was just, you know, some of, some of those attentiveness things, and Jordan Poole actually hitting a bunch of shots and Wiggins. Wiggins looked pretty good, but good teams, especially good teams that don't feel like they need to prove themselves, have these types of games. Last thing, LeBron only finishing two possessions a game with his own shot in the post. That is a a very low number. I still think that that is something they need to look at late in games. Their crunch time offense really melted down again against the Rockets. I think that the Lakers are 0-5 against the, I can't remember what, but 0-5 against like the four or five best teams in the league or whatever it is. The the Rockets, they beat uh, but uh, on the road, but then they looked, it, it just looked stagnant at the end of the game they were outplaying them for most of the game but it was trying to force the ball in the post to ad it was lebron bleeding the clock out shooting jumpers and i think they just they really more than any team like they're very effective in the half court but we mentioned how good they are in transition that's a big part of their offense and they just they need to run something you can't lebron isn't good enough as an iso player anymore especially against the best teams at least right now maybe he gets better in the playoffs but you'd think he'd probably be trying as hard as he can in an isolation at the end of even a regular season game. Uh, you know, he's just not that same level of one-on-one force. And, you know, he's playing maybe better than just about any 35-year-old has ever played. But th- that's just the reality of where he is in now, what is it, his 18th year in the NBA. Um, all right, we done here? Yeah, I think so. I'll mention, I, I don't know when it's going to come out, but there will be Real GM Radio episodes this week and next week. So you can listen to those. We're doing the live show on Wednesday for the aforementioned Lakers playing the Denver Nuggets. Gets pretty excited about that. That'll be on Wednesday. And yeah, I mean, we'll we'll still have Patreon content, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. We're going to do at least one special podcast. We're working on maybe doing something else cool as well. So keep an eye on it and enjoy enjoy the All-Star break. For those of you who like the dunk contest, three-point contest in the game, enjoy that. Other, other, some of us will enjoy time away from the sport a little bit. All right, yeah, we will be back probably on Thursday after the All-Star break with Dunked On, but as mentioned, we'll, uh, we'll have some other content for you between now and then. Talk to you soon.